achieved an 18% annual compounded return during the 1990s, his fund launched in 1993, not by riding the steadily rising tide of stock prices, but by being net short throughout the period. Claugus's highly differentiated exposure levels, via v most equity hedge funds, have been one of the characteristics, besides solid long-term returns, that have attracted investors, particularly those managing multi-fund portfolios. Claugus's hedge fund company, GMT, currently manages $5.0 billion in its onshore and offshore Bay Resource funds. Claugus is based in Atlanta, where I met him a decade earlier when giving a talk to a regional hedge fund group. I interviewed Claugus when he came to New York City to attend a conference. We met after the day's sessions were complete and found an empty meeting room where we could talk in relative privacy. We were periodically interrupted by a security guard, who first came by to see who we were and then returned intermittently to see when we would be leaving. When did you first get interested in the stock market? My father invested in stocks. As a young boy, I saw my father check the stock quote page of the paper every day. I was curious what he was doing, so I asked him about it. I thought I bought my first stocks when I was nine years old. How does a nine-year-old have money to buy stocks? I had a paper route. One of my parents opened a custodian account for me. Did your father help you pick stocks to buy? No, he gave me an S&P stock guide. I leafed through it and found two local companies I recognized, Wheeling, Pittsburgh Steel, and McCrory which was a five-and-dime chain store, so I bought them. Both companies eventually went bankrupt. I made a little money on wheeling Pittsburgh steel, but I held McCrory into bankruptcy. My father was a product of the Depression, and he was scared to death of being poor again. Somehow, I don't know how he did it, he transferred that insecurity to me. From a very early age, I knew I wanted to be financially independent. That was very important to me. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I put together a 30-year financial plan outlining how I could save and invest my money. I calculated that by saving two-thirds of my income and earning 10% a year on my investments, I could be a millionaire by the time I was 53. The reason I picked chemical engineering was that I was good at math and chemistry, and engineering paid well. It was as simple as that. My whole goal was to make $12,000 a year. I almost switched to business several times during college. Why didn't you? I came from a family with a science background. My father was a veterinarian, one of his brothers was a heart surgeon, and the other brother was an engineer. It was sort of expected that I would major in science or engineering. Business was considered too easy. But I wasn't a very good engineer. I did well academically because I was dedicated and worked extremely hard. My father also scared me to death about how important it was to do well in school. When I went to college, he said, Tom, you're going to feel like you're going to jail. You can go out Friday night or Saturday night, but you can't go out both or else you won't get ahead. I really had in my mind that at some point I would study business. My plan was that I would get an MBA. I thought that if I could get both a chemical engineering degree and a business degree, then I could be a manager in a chemical company. After my first two years of work, I decided to go to business school. I applied and got into Harvard. I got the impression from most of my classmates that their families were elated when they got into Harvard Business School. My father, however, was not happy at all when I got accepted. I was not even sure that I was going to go. Then word got out at my company that I had been accepted to Harvard Business School, and one of the vice presidents called and asked me out to lunch. 
I thought, this guy never even acknowledged my existence, and now he calls to take me out to lunch just because I was accepted. Maybe I should go to this place after all. Your father was an educated guy. He was a veterinarian. Why was he so negative on your going to Harvard? He was upset that I was leaving a job that was paying 15800 to go back to school. My father was a very tough guy. He didn't start undergrad until his mid-twenties because he felt he had to stay home, work the family farm, take care of his mother. My father measured almost everything in terms of money. During the summers, I would help my father on the farm, cutting timber and doing other stuff. He would take me down through the woods and teach me about trees. We came across this magnificent walnut tree. My father said with admiration, isn't this a beautiful tree? It's probably worth $3,000. Not counting your dabbling with stocks as a child, when did you start investing in the stock market? I never wanted to depend on my job for money, so I started investing from day one. From the start, I tried to give myself motivation to save money. My plan was to live on one-third of my income plus 3% of my net worth. The 3% of my net worth figure was based on the assumption that I could earn at least 10% a year. So effectively, my plan was to live on one-third of all income. When did you go from being a long-only investor to incorporating shorting as a key component of your investment strategy? In 1986, I became concerned that the market was overpriced. I like risk. I like the excitement of being in the market. I knew I didn't have the discipline to stay out of the market, and I felt the stocks were too expensive, so I started shorting. When in 1986? In early 1986. So you started shorting almost a year and a half too early. The market didn't peak until August 1987. Yes, and a lot of times before the market cracks, the lower quality stocks zoom. I remember being on the tennis courts with my friends in the summer of 1987, he begins a tremulous laugh that betrays an undertone of pain. And I was losing so much money that I had to call my mother to get a loan to meet the margin call. She was the only one I could call. There was no way my dad would have loaned me the money. Did you stay short all the way through until the crash? I did. So even though the market kept moving against you, you just... I just hung in there. You never second-guessed yourself? Sure I did. In fact, when I was playing tennis that day, I told my buddies that I was a failure and that I was going to lose all my money. You were short during the crash of October 19, 1987. What stands out in your memory about that day? As the market was crashing, I thought I could start putting on some longs to reduce my net short position. The trade I remember most is putting in an order to buy Mead paper at 32, and I got a fill at 27. The market was collapsing that quickly. Did you cover any of your shorts during the market freefall? I don't believe I covered much because most of the stocks I was short were low quality, and I didn't think there was a need to cover them quickly. Instead of covering shorts, I started buying stocks that I really liked. But some of the stocks you were short must have been down by 30% or more that day. I was short these fly-by-night companies, some of which were probably manipulated. I think there were only two stocks that were up on October 19, 1987, and I was short one of them. It eventually cratered. I've always tried to be long and short in things that I really believed in for the longer term, situations in which I felt that the fundamental underpinnings of the company were completely different from the way it was being priced. 
1987, you went from margin calls to windfall profits. Did the 1987 experience influence you in any way? 1987 was the first year I made more money in the market than I did in my job. That was an eye-opener for me. And every year after that, I made more money in the market than in my job. How do you go from a career as a chemical engineer and the manager of European operations for a chemical company to being a portfolio manager? If you had asked me a year before I left Roman Haas whether I would ever leave, I would have told you that I was there for the duration. My aspiration was to be CEO of Roman Haas. The reason I had been investing in the stock market up to that point was that I liked risk-taking, and I wanted to be financially independent. I knew I couldn't reach my financial goals on my salary. I was cruising along on a pretty good path, my investments were working for me, and I was making more money on them than in my job. My net worth reached $1.6 million. I thought 3% of $1.6 million is $48,000. I could live on that. Once I had that realization, all of a sudden, the economic necessity to keep on working went away. Until that point, every time I asked myself, when are you going to do what you want to do, the answer would always be later. Did I really want to live in Philadelphia, which is where Roman Haas was located? Not really. The realization that I had the economic freedom to sustain a business for three to five years totally turned me upside down. I spent a year in terrible turmoil. Turmoil in trying to decide what you wanted to do? Yes, ultimately I decided to manage money like I manage my own money. I started a hedge fund in 1990 with three million dollars. Part of it was mine and the rest was from friends and family. What was the experience like managing a fund for the first time? I went from regional director in Europe with everyone telling me how smart I was to managing a portfolio by myself out of my home. I felt a very low sense of self-worth. After nine months of this, I said to myself, Claugus, you are a people person. You made a big mistake. What convinced you that you had made a mistake? I think it was the loneliness. I had spent 17 years at Roman Haas. I missed my friends. How had you done in terms of performance in those first nine months of managing the fund? I was up in the first six months, but then I started giving money back. I think I was still up a little bit when I started to seriously question my decision to manage a fund. Once I was unsure about what I wanted to do, I was afraid that if I continued on and lost money, I would feel a responsibility to make up the difference to my investors, and by reimbursing them, I could lose all the money I had saved up during the past 14 years. Did you discover that managing money was different from what you had perceived it to be? The responsibility of having other people's money really weighed on me. If you have a ten-year time horizon, you can make good decisions and make a lot of money. If you have a three-year time horizon, you could probably still do well. But if you have only a three-month time horizon, anything can happen. Why did you think there was a three-month time horizon? Because I started doubting whether I would continue. Did you close the fund? I did. I closed it at the end of the first year. What finally prompted you to close the fund? I had talked to my friends about how I felt. Roman Haas heard that I was unhappy being on my own and offered me a job. I decided to take the offer and close my fund. How did you feel when you closed the fund? Here's the most startling thing for me. I got the offer letter from Roman Haas around Christmas time. I'll never forget the sinking feeling I had when I read the letter. It was an offer to be regional director of Asia based in Hong Kong. 
I really had no desire to go to Asia. Hadn't you discussed the details of your job before accepting the offer to come back? I hadn't up to that point. They had basically said they would bring me back into a key job and that I would possibly still be in line to become CEO of Roman Haas. Basically, they desperately needed someone good in Asia. No one else who was qualified wanted to go. Their attitude was, Tom wants to come back, perfect, he has to earn his way back, and we'll send him to Asia. It will be well perceived by the organization. For them, it was very clear. I walked out to put the for sale sign in front of my house, and I just couldn't do it. One of my sons was a great gymnast. He was a state champion. So one of my concerns was, where would my kids do their athletics? I had this terrible feeling about it. So I called the CEO of Roman Haas and said, do you mind if I go to Hong Kong and check it out first? He said, sure, go to Hong Kong. When I was at the airport in line for the flight, I was still not sure that I wanted to go. So I got out of line. Then I got back in line and then back out again. I finally got on the plane. What was your impression of Hong Kong? Very crowded. I offered to donate a trampoline to the school, and they said they didn't have room for it. He laughs for a long time at this recollection. I wasn't wild about it, but I decided I would go anyway. I tried to get myself psyched about going, but I just couldn't do it. I decided I needed to go back to Hong Kong and check it out again. It was a replay of my first visit, and I spent five months trying to get myself to go to Hong Kong. I became depressed, and I lost 45 pounds. Boy, you really didn't want this job. This was the first time in my life that I decided to do something mentally that was in conflict with my emotions. My body just stopped me in my tracks. I didn't realize it, but there was no way I could go to Hong Kong. Raman Haas had a coach who did assessments of managers to see if they had the right profile to be CEO. During this period, she was talking to me on the phone and asking me a number of questions. She said, Tom, I think you are clinically depressed. You need to see a psychiatrist. You need to do it right away. She found me a doctor who placed me on antidepressants. Finally, I went to Roman Haas. I was probably down to about 135 pounds by that time, and I looked like death. I told them that I couldn't take the job in Hong Kong. When did you come out of your depression? Very quickly after I turned the job down. That did it? That plus the antidepressants. I had a friend who had gone through depression, and as soon as he realized that I was going through depression myself, he gave me advice. He said, look, Tom, here's what you have to do. I went through all this counseling, and all I can tell you is just get the drugs. After I'd taken the antidepressant for about two weeks, the cloud lifted and I could see again. Was that the only episode of depression you had? The only one. Why do you think you had become clinically depressed? Was it primarily a matter of having to relocate to a place where you didn't want to go? What put me into clinical depression was trying to force myself to go to Hong Kong when I didn't want to do it. But I didn't know for sure why I didn't want to do it. What do you think now was the reason? It was because I was giving up on my dream. In my heart, I really wanted to be on my own, and I hadn't taken it to completion. Did you learn something from that whole experience? Yes, it taught me the importance of having your emotional side lined up with your mental side for life-changing decisions. What did you do after you turned down the job at Roman Haas? I decided that my original plan to start a hedge fund was what I really wanted to do. 
when did you start a new hedge fund? In January 1993. That is about a year and a half after you turned down the Roman Haas job. Why did you wait so long? After my uncertainty the first time, I wanted to be sure of my decision the second time. What about your concern about managing other people's money? If I am 100% dedicated to managing your money, and I lose your money, I can look you in the eye and say, I did my best, and I could be okay with that. If I am not 100% engaged, however, and I'm not even sure I want to be in the business, then managing other people's money is very hard. Once I was sure I wanted to manage money, it took away 80% of the angst. It is the same reason we don't put up gates. We had huge outflows in 2008 because we didn't have gates. Sure, I would have preferred to reduce investor withdrawals, and as it turned out, investors would have been far better off if they didn't redeem in 2008. People do things that are not in their best interest. But there is a big difference between their making their own decision and my telling them what is in their best interest. If investors want to redeem, and I say they can't because there is a gate, and then I lose their money, that is a way different feeling than losing money for investors who have reached their own decision to stay in the fund. How did you find the experience of working alone the second time around? I enjoyed it. What changed? Just time. I got used to working alone, and I love investing. What is your investment philosophy? I am a reversion to the mean thinker. We use standard deviation bands to define extreme readings. For example, here's a chart of the S&P based on data going back to 1932. I didn't want to use the run-up to the Depression and the early years of the Depression because I thought it would distort the data. Using a 95% confidence band, the low is currently 895 and the high is at 2522. The argument is that you would have your maximum long position at the lower band and your maximum short position at the upper band. But obviously there are times when you can stay beyond the bands for a long period. That's where we will lose money. For example, here is the tech bubble when we were net short and the market kept going up. How would your exposure vary based on the market's position relative to the extreme bands? At the lower band, we would be 130% long and 20% short. At the midpoint, we would be 100% long and 50% short. We are 50% net long at the midpoint rather than neutral because of the long-term secular uptrend in stock prices. At the upper band, we would be 90% short and 20% long, or 70% net short. Our net exposure will increase as the market goes down and decrease as the market goes up. We do similar calculations using the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 indexes, and then derive a composite target exposure based on the relation between current prices and the price bands in all three indexes. What are the other elements of your investment approach besides a reversion to the mean adjustment in your portfolio net exposure? After determining the portfolio net exposure, we do a similar analysis by sector, trying to identify sectors that are cheap and sectors that are expensive. I assume that you favor longs in sectors that are cheap and shorts in sectors that are expensive. Are there exceptions? All the time. The relative valuations are only a guideline. It is critical to also examine the specific fundamentals. For example, Brazil may show up as being expensive, but the fundamentals are very good, so I don't want to be short. The next part of our analysis is figuring out why a sector or stock is expensive or cheap, and do we see something that is going to change that? 
That is where we spend 90% of our time. I look for anomalies. When I screen quarterly earnings, I look for quarterly earnings that are up more than 50% or down more than 30%. For example, recently, the earnings for Rock 10, a paper company, were up huge, so I tried to figure out why. What was the reason? The paper stocks had been cheap for four or five years. I had been looking for a reason to buy them, but it is not a great business, and I couldn't come up with one. But over time, there were two things that had happened. First, no one had built any capacity for years because the business was so bad. Second, there was consolidation. As a result of these factors, there was an inflection point. The pricing power had shifted in favor of the suppliers. It is easier to turn down business when capacity is running at over 90% than when it is running at 60%. I didn't necessarily want to own paper companies long term, but I wanted to own them then. That is why we bought Rock 10. What happened with that position? We still hold it, although we have traded around the position. It is up over 50% from where we originally bought it. With the security guard coming in with increasing frequency and Klaug is tired after a long day, we decided we would continue our interview the next day. I met Klaugus the following day at the conference during lunch break. Against my better judgment and prior experience, I agreed to continue our conversation over lunch in the hotel restaurant, which grew steadily noisier as the interview progressed. Deciphering the resulting taped conversation through the background din was a job worthy of the FBI. After repeated listenings with the sound turned up to uncomfortably loud levels, I was able to make out most of our conversation. It is the absolute last time I ever do an interview over a meal. I checked your net exposures and was surprised to see that you were only modestly short near the end of the tech bobble. Wouldn't your long-term valuation model have indicated a more decisive net short position at that juncture? Surely the market must have been near the upper part of the valuation range at that point. We were supposed to be more heavily net short. Our target exposure for the fourth quarter of 1999 was 70% net short. However, we were losing money so fast that we had to back off our position. Every day I would come in and we would be down another 1%. I got to the point where I said, I may be right, but I have to shrink the portfolio. What I did was that for every 1% the portfolio lost, I reduced the exposure by 2%. As a result, instead of being 70% short, we went into the fourth quarter of 1999 at 70% short and 50% long, or only 20% net short. I thought I might replace some of the shorts once the market broke, but I didn't have the guts. I have people tell me all the time that I should short stocks after they break. All I can tell you is that if you didn't short the stock when it was 80, psychologically it's very difficult to sell it when it's 50. Do you have specific risk management rules? For many people, risk control means that they have a plan for what they will do if something goes very wrong. I try to avoid getting into that situation in the first place. Our defining moment of a survival threat is being down more than 7% in a month and not knowing why. If you look at the history of our fund, you will find that 90% of the monthly returns were between plus 7% and minus 7%. So as long as a monthly loss is less than 7%, we are still in a normal range. If a loss exceeds 7%, it indicates that something is wrong. If I can figure out what is wrong, then I might not change anything. If I can't figure out what is wrong, then I'll have to reduce the exposure. So once you are down 7% for the month, you just play defense? No, not necessarily. We were down big in September 2008. 
I started taking off exposure, but I was selling stock at what I considered ridiculous prices. It just felt wrong, so I stopped. Losing money on the long side is different from losing it on the short side. Because on the long side, there is a limit to how low prices can go, but on the short side, the risk is open-ended. It's not only that. It's also different from the client's perspective. During the fourth quarter of 1999, when the market was skyrocketing and I was net short, I was losing my ass at the same time most other hedge funds were making a ton of money. When your investors look around, and you're losing money, while everyone else is making money, they are much more likely to pull their investment. Being short in a rising market is very difficult from an investor relations standpoint. In 2008, we were losing money, but so was everyone else. It's a lot easier to keep your capital base in that type of scenario. It sounds like your risk management process is very discretionary. It depends on your trusting yourself to act when losses are beginning to get more extreme than usual. Yes, it is very hard. We spend a lot of effort to avoid getting into that type of situation in the first place. You want to design a portfolio that will survive a 150-foot tidal wave. The number one risk factor for me is leverage. At the extreme levels, our net exposure is usually less than the net exposure of a typical mutual fund. One of the reasons I didn't take more exposure off in 2008 was that I was only about 75% net long. Virtually every mutual fund on the planet is close to 100% long. So what is the big deal? With the benefit of hindsight, do you believe that you made any mistakes in 1999? I did make one change to the process because of the 1999 experience. I previously used a 90% confidence interval to determine the extremes at which I would go to a maximum net long or short position in the portfolio. As a result of the 1999 experience, I widened the band to 95%. Part of the judgment factor is how much risk you want to take at the extremes because the market can't keep going. The problem I had in 1999 was that I went to a maximum short position too early. But in terms of stock selection, I don't think we did anything wrong. At the start of 2000, I was trying to figure out what went wrong in 1999. I have what I call my evil Knievel screen. These are companies that are trying to jump the Grand Canyon and probably won't make it. There are only two conditions for the screen. First, the company is trading at more than five times book value. Second, the company is losing money. My job is to figure out which stocks won't make it across the Grand Canyon and then go short these stocks. At the time, the internet business model was to get share on the net. It didn't make any difference how much money you lost doing it, as long as you increased your share. In fact, if you lost a lot of money, it meant you were being aggressive. Normally, when I do my evil Knievel screen, I get maybe 60 or so companies. At the end of 1999, I had 180 names. And out of these 180 names, about two-thirds of them had doubled in price during the prior quarter. I thought to myself, there is nothing you can do. These are the best shorts on the planet. I ultimately concluded that I would go short those types of stocks again because 99 times out of 100, I am going to make money. So it would be wrong for me to change my approach because of the 1999 experience. So you concluded that you didn't really do anything wrong. That's right. Just because you made money doesn't mean you were right. And just because you lost money doesn't mean you were wrong. It's all a matter of probabilities. If you take a bet that has an 80% probability of winning and you lose, it doesn't mean it was a wrong choice. I totally agree. A big mistake investors make is that they judge whether a decision was right based solely on the outcome. 
there is a lot of randomness in the outcome. The same set of conditions can lead to different outcomes. If you played 2008 all over again, the same set of initial conditions would sometimes lead to the market bottoming sooner and sometimes lead to a depression. My take on it is that whether a trading decision was right or wrong is not a matter of whether you won or lost, but rather whether you would make the same decision all over again if faced with the same facts, assuming you have a profitable process. 2008 was the first time you had a significant loss at the same time the equity markets and other hedge fund managers were down sharply. What was different in 2008? It all goes back to our net exposure indicator. If the current indicator value is in the lower quartile, that is, price valuations are low, we will be significantly long. If the market then drops sharply, we will lose money just like everyone else. If, however, the market breaks sharply when the indicator is in the upper quartile, then we will significantly outperform. I noticed that you were net short for most of the bull market of the late 1990s, and yet you did very well. How did you manage to achieve strong returns being net short in a sharply rising market? Stock pricing. When the market sells off really hard, as happened in late 2008 to early 2009, it is usually a matter of liquidity. There is no place to hide in a liquidity sell-off. People sell everything because they have to, not because they want to. The reverse rarely happens on the upside. People don't run out and buy everything. There are always some stocks that are going down. The interesting thing is that shorts are actually easier to find than longs. It is easier to spot a broken company than a good company. It is easier to identify bad management than good management. In September 2001, about nine months after I had interviewed Claugus, I called him with additional questions. You are currently 85% net long. That seems to be a relatively high long exposure given the current concerns about the U.S. economy and the stability of the European Union. What makes you so bullish? The net exposure is primarily determined by the mean reversion model, but I don't think the economy is as bad as the media is portraying it. We track a number of basic indicators to get a feel for the real economy. For example, rail traffic is up 2% for the year and truck traffic is up 4%, which are not figures indicative of a contraction. Load factors on airlines are pretty good as well. Revpar revenue per available room, for hotels is up 7%. These are basic indicators you can look at that tell you the economy is just not that bad. Although we still have to work through some of the housing bubble excess, I don't expect construction of housing starts to fall much from here because they are already so low they have almost nowhere to go but up. That's the most optimistic assessment I've heard about the U.S. economy from anyone. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic. If you look at the current numbers, I think it's very difficult to argue that the U.S. economy is in trouble. But if you look at the budget and the trade deficits and government spending, the situation is out of control. We clearly need to rein in government spending, and when that happens, it is likely to slow the economy. It is like a household that has been living off their credit cards and has to start paying back their debts. So even though the current economy may be okay, if we have this contraction looming, doesn't that act as a counterbalance to your bullish argument? Exactly, and that is why I brought it up. Here I am fairly long stocks, and if I look over my shoulder, I see this huge storm cloud, and I don't know when it is going to hit. It could be in six months, it could be in six years. In Europe, the markets are already disciplining the governments. Eventually the same thing will happen in the U.S. if we don't take actions beforehand. 
and so far the politicians have shown no ability to either cut costs or raise revenues in anticipation of the growing debt problem. Politicians only respond to a crisis when they have someone to blame, either the market or the bankers or anybody but themselves, and then they will act. The Western world has a huge debt problem and is managing it very poorly. So where does that leave you? On the one hand, you have all these indicators that tell you the economy is better than most people think it is, while on the other hand, you have the storm cloud that when it hits will presumably take the market down sharply, at least initially. We are trying to focus on industries and companies that will do okay, regardless of the economy, and on international economies that we expect will continue to do well. What kind of companies would be more immune to a contraction in the economy? Companies that offer solutions to problems. One example is Selenice. They are working on a process to produce ethanol from natural gas at much lower costs. If they can take cheap natural gas and turn it into ethanol and undercut the current price of ethanol, and possibly even gasoline, they would be able to capture a share of the huge fuel market, regardless of what the economy is doing. Which countries are you focusing on that you believe have the best long-term prospects? China is one, but with the caveat that centrally run economies generally don't do well. We like Indonesia. Fifteen years ago, they were a basket case, but now they have a sound budget, exports are growing, and the economy has been doing well for several years. We also like Brazil, Singapore, and Colombia. Colombia? That is not one I would have expected on the list. Ten years ago, you couldn't drill a well in Colombia because you would get shot. The FARC was all over the place. Now the government will actually base military personnel at drilling operations. The Putumayo Basin is largely unexplored because people couldn't get in there before the last four or five years. In the past three years, Colombia's oil production has shot up from 600,000 barrels per day to 950,000 barrels per day, and I think it will continue to grow rapidly. The same thing is true for other industries as well, such as agriculture. The change security situation in Colombia is sparking a complete rebirth of the Colombian economy. What percent of your portfolio is in emerging markets versus developed countries? Right now it's about 30% and growing, which is as high as it has ever been. How do you pick stocks? Can you provide an example that illustrates your thinking process? I can use one of our current largest positions, which is United Airlines, as an example. The conventional wisdom is that airlines are a terrible investment and that you never want to own them. In fact, Warren Buffett says that he has a full-time employee whose only job is to keep him from ever buying another airline again. My son has a similar line. He asks, how do you become a millionaire? Answer, start with a billion and buy an airline. There are many reasons why airlines are widely considered to be poor investments. They are capital-intensive, they are people-intensive, they are difficult to manage, they have to rely on an inefficient government air traffic control system, and if despite all of that they ever manage to make money, the unions start asking for more wages so they don't make money then either. That's a persuasive bullish argument. So why is United Airlines one of your largest long positions? It is a controversial call, but that is how you make money when you are right. My view is that the lack of profitability in airlines has its origins back in the days when airlines were regulated. Regulation fostered the proliferation of airlines because prices were protected, and it also resulted in very high-cost structures. 
When the airlines were deregulated, the legacy carriers, who had very high-cost structures, had to compete with newcomers such as Southwest Airlines, who had a much lower-cost structure because they had not been exposed to years and years of a pricing umbrella, which encouraged inefficiency. Two things happened that changed the investment outlook for airlines. First, with the exception of American Airlines, all the major carriers went through bankruptcy, which allowed them to restructure their costs. Second, the industry has been able to merge down to three major players, United, Delta, and American. Among the three, I think that United has the best route structure. United, along with its partners, controls approximately 50% of the flights from the U.S. to Asia and 40% of the flights to Europe. I believe that going forward, United can get their operating margin up to about 10%, which isn't that great, but it is fabulous for an airline. It would give United $6 per share earning power. At the current price of $20, earnings at that level would imply a P.E. ratio of only 3.3. I'm not willing to put out large multiple on United, but even a multiple of only 8 to 10 would imply that I have a chance of doubling to tripling my money back in the stock. Can you give me another trade example that illustrates how you pick stocks? One thing I try to do is find oil companies whose price reflects only current production without accounting for ongoing exploration programs that have the potential to significantly increase future production. It is a way of essentially getting free optionality. For example, we are long Petrominerales, a Colombian oil and gas company that currently produces about 40,000 barrels per day. The optionality in the trade is that Petrominerales has 600,000 acres leased in the same region as their current producing wells, and they have a number of rigs drilling new wells there, but the market is not pricing in any of this potential additional production. The best time to enter this type of trade is after a disappointment. Petro Mineralis also has assets in Peru, and recently one of its competitors drilled a dry hole in Peru, which caused all the oil companies in the region to sell off sharply. We use this price break as an opportunity to buy the stock. Another good example of this trade concept is Canadian Natural Resources. We took a large position in this stock when they announced a new oil sands project, which had the potential to generate $1 billion a year in cash flow. Even then, it was obvious and clear that this production would be coming on stream. The market didn't assign any value to it. What tends to happen is that people who use fundamental screens, such as price to cash flow and other metrics, will not pick these stocks because the potential future revenue does not show up in the statistics. Does the type of trade idea illustrated by this example apply only to oil producers, or does it have broader applicability? The broader idea is getting optionality from a business opportunity that is not producing current revenues, but has the potential to produce future revenues, a concept that would apply to other industries as well. For example, in recent years, Apple was frequently priced at the value of their existing products without pricing in the potential for future revenues on new products, despite their consistent record of innovation. Sometimes the future opportunity may relate to asset values rather than increased cash flow. For example, one of our holdings is a company called Paramount Resources, which acquires land that has the potential for oil or gas exploration. They will identify interesting geological situations, lease the land, and just wait. They will sell the land once the area becomes discovered by oil companies who start drilling exploratory wells in the vicinity. If you looked at Paramount's numbers, you would never buy the stock. It always looks expensive because they are capturing the resource, but are not developing it themselves. 
so its true value never shows up in the numbers. You have to be willing to look at their acreage and figure out what it's really worth from an asset basis rather than a cash flow basis. Any other examples of companies with free optionality? Selenese, which I mentioned before, is currently trading at only 10 or 11 times earnings, and they have a new process for making ethanol that could be a complete game-changer for them. I don't think the market is attaching much, if any, value to this process because it hasn't gone into production. The first plant is scheduled to come on stream at the end of next year. I often find that the market won't pay anything for production potential that is more than a year away. As another example, we had a substantial long position in emerging market wireless during the past five years. Some developed countries have cell phone penetration rates greater than 100%. Some people have more than one cell phone. The simple idea that drove this investment was the expectation that the emerging market penetration rate, which at the time was about 60% for the sector, would approach closer to developed market rates because the utility of cell phones was so high. The general principle is that we look for future revenue generation that can be reasonably anticipated, but that is not reflected by the current market price. The idea is probably the single most important concept in our stock selection process. There is an important lesson provided by Claugus that is both specific to the stock market and also has general implications for all investors. Vary exposure based on opportunity. In terms of stock investing, Claugus will vary his net exposure between theoretical extremes at 70% net short and 110% net long, depending on the placement of current prices within the price band that contains 95% of all price observations. When stock prices are near the low end of the long-term price band, Claugus will hold a maximum long position. Conversely, when prices are near the upper end of the band, he will hold a maximum short position. Varying the net exposure based on the prevailing opportunity provides for substantial improvement over an investment approach that maintains net exposure within a narrow range. One of Claugus's major themes in selecting individual stocks is looking for companies that will benefit from a future development that is not being priced into the current market. The source of the improvement can take many forms, including anticipated new sources of production, new technology, an expected increase in asset values, and so on. Claugus says that if a revenue source is more than a year away, the market will often fail to assign any significant value to it. Claugus views these trades as providing free optionality. You pay a fair value for the stock based on the prevailing statistic only, but get the upside of the anticipated favorable development, e.g. new source of production, for free. Fundamental screens will fail to identify these stocks because the source of the bullish potential is not at all reflected in current statistics. A common error that traders make is to judge whether a trading decision was right or wrong based on the outcome. I offer you two-to-one odds on a fair coin toss, and you take the bet and lose. It may be a losing bet, but it is still a correct bet because, on balance, making the same decision repeatedly will be very profitable. Similarly, a losing trade can still reflect a correct trading decision. Claugus lost money in shorting what he terms evil Knievel stocks in late 1999. But these trades were not mistakes because Glaugus has found that shorting these companies is a winning strategy. There is no way of knowing a priori which individual trade is likely to be a winner. Traders need to accept that a certain percentage of good trades will lose money. As long as a profitable strategy is implemented according to plan, a trade loss does not imply a trading mistake. On the flip side, a winning trade can still be a poor trading decision. 
For example, if someone went long internet stocks at the beginning of January 2000 and liquidated at the end of February 2000, in terms of outcome, it would be a brilliant trade. But it would be a horrible trade in terms of making the same trading decision over and over again under similar circumstances. The market happened to top in early March, but it could just as easily have topped in early January. Even though the specific trade would have been profitable, if the same trading decision were made over and over again under similar circumstances, the net outcome would often be a large loss. Trading is a matter of probabilities. Any trading strategy, no matter how effective, will be wrong a certain percentage of the time. Traders often confuse the concepts of winning and losing traders with good and bad trades. A good trade can lose money, and a bad trade can make money. A good trade follows a process that will be profitable at an acceptable risk, if repeated multiple times, although it can lose money on any individual trade. A bad trade follows a process that will lose money if repeated multiple times, but may make money on any individual trade. As an analogous example, a winning slot machine wager is still a bad bet because if repeated multiple times, it has a high probability of losing money. Chapter 12 Joe Vidich Harvesting Losses Typically, the managers I select for interviews are managers that I either know or locate through networking. Joe Vidich is one of the exceptions. I found him by searching a hedge fund database, looking for funds with exceptionally high return-slash-risk performance. The Manalapan Fund, which was launched in May 2001 and managed by Joe Vidich, stood out for its impressive performance statistics. I had never heard of either the fund or the manager. For the 10 years plus since the fund's inception, Vidich has averaged an annualized compounded net return of 18%, 24% gross return, with a maximum drawdown of only 8%. This modest maximum drawdown is exceptional for an equity hedge fund during 2001 to 2011, a time period that included two massive bear markets. Vidich has tremendously outperformed his sector. During the corresponding time period, the HFR Equity Hedge Index was up only 4% annualized with a maximum drawdown of nearly 29%, less than one quarter of Manalapan's return with nearly four times the drawdown. And the index understates the average maximum drawdown because of the smoothing effect of diversification. Reflecting the combination of strong returns and moderate losses, the gain-to-pain ratio of the Manalapan is a very high 2.4. I originally met with Nick Davidge, the managing director who runs the business operations for Manalapan. At the time, I was living in Martha's Vineyard, and conveniently, Davidge was visiting Cape Cod. I took the ferry over and joined him for a waterside lunch on a pleasant summer day. Davidge explained how he became a principal of Manalapan. Davidge was the founder of a company that provided order routing software to market makers, and Joe Vidich was one of his clients. David recalled, What struck me about Joe when I first met him was that he was an intellectual who was also a trader. Through this association, David became aware of Vidic's trading skills, particularly the effective way Vidic combined his longer-term investment themes with his reading of market sentiment and individual names. When Vidic launched his fund years later, David was one of the first investors. After David sold his company, he joined Vidic as a partner in Manalapan. Vidic combines longer-term investments with short-term trading that provides supplemental returns. For the investment portion of the portfolio, Vidic begins by formulating a big picture of the economy and the stock market. Next, Vidic looks for themes that drive him to sectors and subsectors. As a final step, 
Vidic does fundamental analysis and observes trading activity to select the best individual stocks within the targeted sectors. Vidic's timing in entering and exiting these positions is heavily influenced by what he calls his assessment of sentiment, price action relative to events. Vidic or his analysts listen to about 300 conference calls every quarter. The market action following these conference calls can provide Vidic with important clues. For example, if a company reports generally bullish news in its conference call, and the next day the market is up, but the stock is down, Vidic would view this price action as a bearish indicator. Before starting his fund, Vidic spent a dozen years as a market maker and proprietary trader for various small brokerage firms. Vidic explains that since the order flow from retail investors is heavily long-biased, the market maker is by definition a short trader. For every buy order a market maker fills, he has to trade out of the resulting short position. Vidic feels that because of his many years of experience as a market maker, his trading skills are most finely developed on the short side. Even though long-term investment themes and position trades are core to Vidic's investment approach, he is an extremely active trader. The turnover for the fund is approximately 20x, of which about 15x is on the short side. Vidic's net exposure varies widely and has ranged between 80% net long to 37% net short. Vidic's firm, Manalapan Oracle Capital Management, is located in a small town in central New Jersey. Vidic is an amateur artist, and Manalapan's offices can double as an art gallery, as his paintings adorn every wall. His style ranges between post-impressionism and abstract, with some paintings having one foot in each camp. Vidic says he is not technically proficient, and indeed his paintings that include animal figures have a primitive style. But he has a strong sense of color. There are clear influences of Gauguin and Van Gogh in his work. Interested readers can view a selection of his paintings at www.easthurley.com. Vidic says that he began painting many years ago as a way to relax. The more stress in his life, the more he paints. He was particularly prolific the year he divorced. Vidic seems to enjoy whatever he is doing, whether it is trading or being interviewed. He has a loud, booming laugh, which was triggered often in our interview, as he was clearly amused by his recollections. Vidic opened our conversation by asking why I had selected him for an interview. Why you? That's relatively easy. In terms of return slash risk, in the 10 years you have been running this fund, you have generated better numbers than 99% of the managers out there, and that is exactly what I'm looking for. How did you first get involved in stocks? I got into the stock market because my brother's friend, who was a stockbroker, was going to India to see his guru and needed someone to sit at his desk for a month to simply answer the phone. I had just graduated college and wasn't doing anything yet, so I said I would do it. What did you do when there was a phone call from a client who wanted to place an order? I gave it to the guy next to me. I wasn't registered, so I couldn't do anything. I eventually did get registered as a stockbroker with the same firm. What degree did you graduate with? I had a Master's of International Business from the Columbia School of International Affairs. Almost all the people I graduated with went to work for international banks, who were hiring big at the time, or foreign service. I had no interest in working for a corporation. Did you actually look for a job after you received your master's? My kids say, Dad, you never even tried looking for a job. And, in a sense, they are right. I did go for a number of interviews with banks after I graduated, but I just felt I wasn't the right person to get into that environment. There was something holding me back from being interested. What appealed to you about being a stockbroker? It was the high energy. Had you learned anything by the time you became registered as a stockbroker? 
I had a friend who had been trading stocks since he was a kid. After I became a stockbroker, he told me, Joe, you don't know anything. But I had a lot of enthusiasm. He was right, though. I didn't know anything. I was probably dangerous to my customers. I was literally following the firm's research, but if you work for a firm that has bad ideas, you don't have a chance. When did you begin trading? I am not a cold caller. It's not in me to call someone up and try to solicit business. I am not a salesman, never have been, never will be. I'm actually the exact opposite. I never made much in commissions, but then my three best accounts all disappeared for different reasons. An old-time trader I knew advised me that I should ask my boss permission to trade my own account. I took his advice and I went to my boss and I said, can I set up my own trading account because I really don't have any other income? He laughs harder and louder than usual at this recollection. He offered me a deal to set up my own account with the authority to carry up to $30,000 on positions overnight, providing I put up $2,000 of my own money. I would be allowed to keep any profits and the firm would keep all the commissions. That sounded like a good deal to me. I did okay, averaging about $4,000 a month. Any trades stand out from that time period? One of the stockbrokers in the office kept touting the stock ERLY Industries. So I finally bought some. When I bought the stock, it was seven and a half bid, seven and three-fourths offered. I didn't realize that the stock frequently traded at a one-dollar spread. Another hearty laugh. So right after I bought it at seven and three-fourths, all of a sudden it was six and three-fourths bid. I only had two thousand dollars in the account, and I had bought two thousand shares. That meant if I tried getting out of the stock, my equity would be wiped out. I was stuck in that stock for about two weeks. Finally, the bid came back to seven and a half, and I took my loss immediately. I didn't care. It was such a thin stock that I was just happy to get out. In those early days, what did you learn about trading that was useful? I learned that it is always better to do your own work and get your own information because then you will have some more confidence. If you listen to someone else get into a trade and things go bad, then you have to listen to that person again to get you out. I have a real antipathy towards outside research analysts calling us with trading ideas because if you follow their advice to get into a trade, then you have to wait for their advice to get out and things can change. The price could be down 10% or 15% before they call you again. What else did you learn? I learned that low-priced stocks can be terrible or great. You have to look at the valuation of the company. Chrysler was a penny stock. Global Marine traded for $1 and went to $90. A few years ago, some of the best companies in America traded down to a few dollars. Dow Chemical traded for $5. Now it is back to $38. Why did it trade down to $5? Because everyone was afraid. People seeing their money disappear started redeeming their mutual fund and hedge fund investments. Faced with liquidations, mutual fund and hedge fund managers had no choice but to liquidate regardless of the price. The down move became a self-fulfilling trend until something changed. When that change occurred, there was a tremendous upside in the various names. There are times when fear dominates. Those are the times you have to be a buyer. Those are the times of great opportunity. Anything else? I learned the danger in selling expensive stocks just because they are overpriced and buying value stocks just because they are underpriced. Pricey stocks are always 30% pricier than they should be because people are willing to own them at 30% above what they should own them at. A good growth stock is always overvalued and a lousy company is always undervalued. That is the danger of buying value stocks. Until you get the turn, where the market recognizes an improvement in the business model, they are always going to be undervalued. 
If you're going to short a growth stock because it is 30% overvalued, it is going to grow for the next five years, always being 30% overvalued, until it finally breaks, and by that time, you are probably not going to be there. Why do you believe you have done so well? One reason that I have done well is the evolution of information flow in the marketplace. When the SEC adopted fair disclosure in 2000, it meant that company conference calls had to be open to everyone. Information could no longer be controlled by the large brokerage firms, who then funneled it out to the public. I am not an expert on everything. When you listen to a conference call, you hear what the analyst's questions are, and the analysts generally know a lot more about the company than I do. When analysts key in on certain things, it tells you what they think is important. Can you give me examples of conference calls you listened to that directly led to trades? We shorted Citigroup at $48 in 2008 before it crashed. Why did we go short? The earnings report had come out for Citigroup and the stock was down $2. That was a really big move for Citigroup, so I decided to listen to the conference call. I understood banks in terms of their basic business, but I didn't understand anything that was said about CDOs or anything else to do with mortgage-backed securitizations. But the key thing I realized from the call was that not a single analyst understood it either. You could tell from their questions that they didn't know what was going on, and confusion is an opportunity, so I went short the stock. Any other examples? A number of years ago, when we were long a lot of coal stocks, one of the coal company conference calls mentioned that they had to place large orders for coal cars because they just didn't have enough cars to meet all the demand. I immediately checked a number of companies that manufactured coal cars and noticed that